Florida Matters is supported by WUSF members just like you. Your donation of $5 or $25 will help ensure public radio thrives. And thanks to Candy Olson, an additional $50 will be added to your donation. Visit WUSF.org match to maximize your gift today. This is Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. Governor Ron DeSantis' priorities this legislative session has put him at the leading edge of the culture wars. Controversial bills signed into law target the teaching of race, gender identity and sexual orientation in schools, restrict abortions past 15 weeks, strip Disney of its special tax district and create an election police force to tackle voter fraud. Another bill allows businesses to sue their local government if an ordinance causes them to lose 15% of revenue. And the governor laid a heavy hand on the redistricting process, pushing through congressional maps that have been decried for diluting minority representation. Critics have called DeSantis a bully and say he's governing like a dictator. DeSantis and his supporters say his priorities are pro-business, pro-freedom and put more power in the hands of parents. Here's DeSantis speaking at the signing of House Bill 7, the so-called Stop Woke Act, last month. We're here today because we believe in education not indoctrination. We believe an important component of freedom is the, in the state of Florida is the freedom from having oppressive ideologies opposed upon you without your consent, whether it be in the classroom or whether it be in the workplace, and we decided to do something about it. DeSantis also used that speech to criticize the media and to thank supporters for getting the bill through the legislature, like Senate President Wilton Simpson. Florida students should be able to learn about factual history facts in an environment that recognizes all individuals are created equal before the law and have unalienable rights. This bill protects these individual freedoms and prevents discrimination in public schools and the workplace while supporting factual education discussions for our students. And in the state of Florida, we have the best governor in the country making sure we do this. So what does DeSantis's style of leadership mean for local control? And what impact are culture wars going to have on business and the pocketbooks of taxpayers? For more, we're joined via Zoom by Orlando-based journalist Jason Garcia. His Substack publication, Seeking Rents, examines how businesses influence public policy in Florida. Jason, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me, Matthew. We did see some controversial legislation passed last session, the one before this year, like the anti-riot bill, for example. So with that in mind, was it a surprise to see so many of these culture war type bills pushed through this year? No, I don't think it was. Uh, like you mentioned, this has sort of become the model the last couple of years. In addition, last year to to the anti-protest law, there was also, you know, uh, the attack on sort of transgender youth and using um, participating in sports. There, were, there was the social media tech censorship campaign, that sort of thing. It's become, you know, very clearly uh, part of the governor's political strategy is to really emphasize these issues that really resonate particularly with the base of voters that supported former President Donald Trump. Is this unique to Florida or is Florida an outlier? Because we are seeing some of those bills pushed through in other states as well. Yeah, Florida seems to be um, 
an outlier in the sense in the, the sort of the volume of it happening right now. They're sort of like they're they're taking on each one, all of these culture wars. They're fighting all of them at once. Um, but you're right. I mean, this has been, you know, for a long time, a part of the, the Republican Party playbook is is to use these types of these types of social battles to really sort of mobilize the base. I wanted to ask you a little more detail about the bill around Reedy Creek, the bill to strip Disney of its Reedy Creek tax district. It's widely seen as retaliation for Disney's opposition to the parental rights and education bill, which opponents have called the don't say gay bill. But the sponsor of the Reedy Creek bill, Randy Fine, says it's about fairness, not retribution. What's your take on this? Yeah, that's that's completely not true. It, it is clearly about retaliation for Disney, although I will say not just about Disney sort of belatedly speaking out in opposition to the um, to the the so-called don't say gay bill, but also Disney announcing that it would stop giving campaign contributions. Um, and that, that that's a huge deal. Right. So so Disney, uh, you, you I'm sure you know, this, Matthew, is one of the and has for many years been one of the most influential, politically influential companies in Florida, in Tallahassee. Just in the uh, in the 2020 election cycle, it made nearly five million dollars in campaign contributions. More than 80 percent of that that money went to Republicans and Republican leaning groups. Right. So when Disney announces uh, it is no longer going to uh, make campaign contributions or going to stop that, that's a big deal. And all of this sort of pushback, the the taking away, uh, trying to take away Reedy Creek, trying to take away a carve out to a social media censorship bill that the governor's office helped Disney get a year ago, all of that came after Disney said it was going to stop making campaign contributions. And there's also it, it also goes against what we've heard from a lot of Republicans traditionally, which is that they support the rights of private businesses to pretty much do as they please without state interference. So it's really a, a kind of a 180. Yeah, I mean, it was I, I've been paying attention to Florida politics for almost 20 years. And anybody who's been watching Florida politics for a long time, they, they had never seen anything like this, particularly. Maybe the closest thing is former Governor Charlie Chris during um, an insurance special session seemed to really vilify State Farm or something like that. But that was that was really built around, you know, channeling the populist anger at like high insurance rates, this sort of singling out a company for political retribution, because you don't like what they had to say, or you don't like the fact that they have stopped giving money. I don't think anybody's ever seen anything like that. Certainly not on this this sort of volume and involving this this high profile a company. Now, critics say dissolving the tax district is going to burden Floridians with debt and be costly, particularly for Orange and Osceola County residents. Do we really know what the price tag on this is going to be? Uh, the, the short answer to that is no, we don't. Um, it could, uh, and where that where that sort of concern is coming from is, you know, Reedy Creek is is a massive municipal government at this point. It, it collects about. Uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 to 200 million dollars a year in property tax from Disney, and then pays that amount of money in municipal services, primarily at Disney World. Um, it also is carrying more than a billion dollars of debt that it needs to service that it makes payments on. Right? Um, if in a in a vacuum, if Reedy Creek just goes away, all of those expenses and liabilities get absorbed by Orange and Osceola counties by local governments, who would then have to pay for them. And so I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the the concern about that there could be some sort of tax increase to local taxpayers. Um, but the reality is there are so many different variables at play. Um, there are different mechanisms uh, you could put in place at, at a local level that would ensure Disney pays higher taxes that, that 
while they wouldn't offset all of the expense you take on, you could sort of recoup most of those costs. They're also, you know, Disney has a couple of uh, a small city governments out there that could somehow factor into this mix. I mean, maybe there's a scenario where um, where you you basically recreate Reedy Creek with one of those city governments, but you know, in everything but name. Nobody knows the answers to this question. And what that really speaks to is this was not at all about like doing substantive policy, right? If a serious, responsible policymaker would have gotten all these questions sort of studied and analyzed and answered in advance, right? There was none of that with this legislation. This was entirely about punishing Disney and sending a message to other businesses. But the message from Governor DeSantis and his team has been, don't worry about this. There, there isn't going to be any burden for Floridians, whether in Orange and Osceola County or, or further afield. You know, Tampa Bay residents, for example, shouldn't be worried about the, the ramifications of this. We have time to figure it out effectively. Yeah, that's right. And uh, again, we have not seen any specifics uh, like you would expect to in a serious policymaking scenario. There are potentially, there are obviously different legislation they could do. Um, to try and uh, account for some of this stuff. I mean, the most likely scenario here is is this this Reedy Creek dissolution doesn't take effect until I believe it's June 2023, which conveniently after the next election is over, after the next session, the most likely scenario is ultimately very little changes. I mean, normally a lot of the political business quid pro quo doesn't really happen out in the open or so blatantly like this. Do you, like, do you see that changing going forward? No, I would think uh, if for most businesses, you'll, you'll note that um, other businesses have been uh, quiet as a church mouse on this. Nobody's uh, rallying to Disney's defense, not even the not even the, the entities like the Florida Chamber of Commerce or Associated Industries of Florida that exist to sort of defend businesses in these sorts of situations. I think everybody is just keeping their heads down and hoping it goes back to business as usual. Um, and, and you this actually brings up a really good point. Uh, a really important point about both sort of the broader use of these culture wars and also sort of the the theatrical sort of punishment of Disney right now. A lot of this is designed to distract from the fact that they do so much for these these politically influential businesses. I'll give you just one example. Right now, as we speak, the state of Florida is sending out $625 million in corporate tax refunds to the biggest and most profitable businesses in Florida. Almost... It, it, you know, anybody listening to this, you're not getting a dime of this. Only the top 1% of businesses are getting this money, right? And even more than that, the top 100 businesses are getting half of it, $300 million. The top 10 businesses are all getting about $11 million each on average. There is a lot of policy that passes like this that people don't pay attention to because they're so busy. They're focusing on the sort of the fury around, you know, bills like the don't say gay bill, like the, the critical race theory ban like uh, last year's anti-protest bill, or like the sort of public execution of the Reedy Creek Improvement District. If we just walk the Disney situation back to its genesis, the parental rights and education bill and the backlash to that, that's which what started this kind of war with, with Disney. That bill in itself was controversial, but how unusual is it to see new legislation like the Reedy Creek bill arising from reaction to another bill from just a few weeks before in that same session? Oh, it's uh, it's possible I'm I'm forgetting something, but as far as I can remember, this is unprecedented. I mean, you have to remember the Reedy Creek bill was the governor amended the special session the day before the special session began, 
the bill was passed and signed into law by the end of the week. It was less than 72 hours, I believe, from the time the text of the legislation showed up to the time the legislature voted it out. And this goes back to what we're talking about. There are so many unanswered questions around how this actually gets implemented, what the actual implications are. They made no attempt to study any of that, or at least to publicly publicly show that they've done any sort of preparation for this. If we could change gears for a moment and talk about some of the other legislation that's gone through, one piece that maybe hasn't got so much attention amongst everything else is the Local Business Protection Act that, that allows businesses to sue for damages in some cases where a local ordinance might affect their profits. Opponents say that's going to be bad for taxpayers, but could you talk a little bit about the background to this bill and what that means for local control particularly? You know, there has been a, a huge movement and it is uh, is become even more intense in recent years by this, the Florida legislature to strip powers away from uh, local governments, right? So you see this in everything from a number of years ago in Orange County, there was an effort to require employers to provide paid sick time. Disney and uh, Darden Restaurants successfully lobbied the Florida legislature to take those to prohibit cities from regulating regulating benefits like paid sick leave. So we call these preemptions. There have been many, many preemptions over the years, and they've been building. And so this year, Senate President Wilton Simpson described this as as sort of a, a getting out in front of preemptions by passing this bill that. It doesn't specifically take any powers away from local governments, but what it does say, if they do anything, if they pass a local ordinance that hurts a business's profits, if it causes their, I believe it's their profit or their revenue to go down by 15%, then that business can then sue for damages. And so what this ultimately means, one way to think about it is there has been a movement across the country to have local governments ban pet stores from selling puppies, from buying puppies from puppy mills and then selling them to consumers, right? This bill, if, if, you're, in a, if you're in a county that, hasn't, that is considering one of these, but you've got a pet store that, that sells puppies, right? If you pass a bill now saying no pet store can sell puppies, then that pet store can now sue you and you may have to pay that pet store for the economic harm you've cost them. And so that I think a lot of uh, a lot of opponents of this are really sort of concerned that it will ultimately just it is designed to chill local governments from doing anything that might upset businesses. And where it really matters is when you're dealing with big chain businesses or deep pocketed businesses that have the ability to litigate these things out. How does a bill like this, the Local Business Protection Act, which you know speaks to that notion of eroding local control, how does that fit in with? Ron DeSantis's mode of, of governing? Well, there's been um, a real effort in Tallahassee to sort of consolidate power in the capital at the state level, to consolidate power in the, in the governor's office specifically. We saw a lot of that with uh, sort of the battle between local governments and the, and the state level during COVID over things like mask mandates, over things like shutdowns, those sorts of things. So it, it does sort of fit within the governor's style of amassing sort of authority and power in him. And we've seen this governor, politically speaking, has become the most powerful governor I think anybody can recall, certainly since Republicans took control in the 90s. So um, it does fit. Now, I will say the governor has shown he's not 100% dogmatic on local control issues. I believe uh, a couple of years ago, he, pre he vetoed an effort by the legislature to stop local governments from banning, I think it was single-use plastics like straws and stuff like that. 
he has not yet signed this local business protection act and there is a there's a campaign to to get him to veto it but broadly speaking the, there has been an effort by the Republican Party of Florida to consolidate power in Tallahassee, and the governor has been sort of out front of that effort. Yeah, there have been some surprises in the governor's veto pen this year. I think the uh, rooftop solar uh, bill was one of them. So New York Times reporter Patricia Mazay described the slew of legislation led by the governor as turning Florida into, quote, a laboratory of the possible for the political right. I mean, how much of this legislation... Jason, do you think is driven by the fact that it's an election year for the governor and also that DeSantis is widely thought to be harboring presidential aspirations? I think uh, I think that is the overarching reason, the, the, the main reason for all of it. It is um, designed to excite uh, Republican primary voters. It is not even about the bills themselves. So many of these bills end up getting litigated and proved to be unconstitutional, so they never actually get enforced. A classic example of this is the the bill the governor championed last year that allegedly outlawed censorship on social media companies. That law has not been enforced since he he signed it. It was a a court granted an injunction against it, finding it was quite likely to be found unconstitutional, and that's still being litigated. But the point about these, these policies is not the policy itself often. It is about the messaging. It is about telling voters, look what I did, look who I stood up to. I don't think that's the only reason. I think all of these bills also exist to sort of keep people's attention while they're doing other things. So, you know, we talked about last session, last year at the same time that they did the anti-protest bill, that they did the the transgender sports bill, they also passed a $1 billion tax increase on consumers by uh, requiring Amazon and other online companies to collect uh, sales tax on uh, third-party sales, which is most of the sales they do. And they use that $1 billion tax increase on consumers to cut taxes by $1 billion a year for businesses. And so those bills don't get nearly as much sort of vitriol or attention or inflame passions as much. And so these social, these uh, culture war battles are in large part uh, a way to sort of distract folks from paying attention to whether or not their economic interests are really being represented. We've been speaking with Orlando-based journalist Jason Garcia. His Substack publication, Seeking Rents, examines how businesses influence public policy in Florida. Jason, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to Florida Matters. We're talking about Governor Ron DeSantis' leadership style and taking a closer look at some of the bills he's signed and what they mean for Floridians. Next, we'll talk with constitutional law professor Chara Torres-Spellacy. Our conversation continues in just a moment. Welcome back to Florida Matters. I'm Matthew Petty. We're talking about Governor Ron DeSantis' leadership style and the impact of culture wars on Floridians. For a closer look at the slew of controversial new laws and legal challenges against them, we're joined via Zoom by Professor Chara Torres-Spellacy, who teaches election law, corporate governance, business entities and constitutional law at Stetson University College of Law. Professor, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. On the issue of maps, two Republican lawmakers have pointed out that Governor Ron DeSantis is within his rights as a resident of Florida to submit congressional redistricting maps, and those same lawmakers have also defended the way the maps were vetted and approved during that special session. On the other hand, there are claims from Democratic lawmakers primarily that the governor's input here tramples over the, over the usual checks and balances that make for good governance. What is your takeaway about checks and balances and how 
the state is governed just from the recent session? Well, governors in most states have some role in the redistricting process. I mean, the typical way that maps are done in many states is that they're passed by the legislature and then governors have the opportunity to either sign them into law or veto them the way that they deal with other legislation, which is the checks and balances between the legislature and the executive branch. What's a little bit peculiar here is the legislature was going to have their own maps, uh, but then Governor DeSantis um, seemed to be insistent that a different set of maps should become uh, the Florida maps. And so we'll see whether judges think that these maps offend the Florida Constitution. So the Florida Constitution requires fair districts. And it's entirely possible that these districts don't comply with that part of the Florida Constitution. How do you see that lawsuit playing out? Because there, there was a lawsuit filed fairly soon after the governor signed the uh, new maps into law. What's your sense of how that lawsuit may go? Well, uh, the Supreme Court has closed the door to partisan gerrymandering claims in federal court, which leaves this entirely to the states and state courts. And at the same time that the Supreme Court got out of the business of looking at partisan gerrymanders, they actually cited to Florida as an example of a state constitution that demands fair districts. And Florida has had districts thrown out before under this part of the Florida constitution. So I sort of anticipate that there's going to be more map drawing in our future as courts throw out these particular maps. And one of the questions that's been raised is, will there be enough time to work through all of the legal ins and outs before the election, and it seems like there may not be enough time. Do you think that kind of throws a, a bit of an extra wrinkle into this process? Yes. Unfortunately, we sort of go through this every decade. We have our census, then the redistricting starts, then the litigation starts. So often it can take several cycles before we get to a constitutionally acceptable map. So it is entirely possible that Floridians will be voting under constitutionally problematic maps this year. If we turn to some of the most polarizing legislation, leaving the redistricting aside for a moment, and some of that legislation revolves around education, what can and can't be taught in schools. There's the Stop Woke Act and the Parental Rights and Education Bill, which opponents labeled the Don't Say Gay Bill. There are also lawsuits filed against these two pieces of legislation as well. What recourse do plaintiffs have in the state or federal court system if they don't like these two pieces of legislation? A lot of this legislation that has been recently enacted in Florida runs straight into the First Amendment. There are huge First Amendment problems with the Don't Say Gay, uh, the Stop Woke Act, and the problem is basically this. The government does not get to tell you what to read, think, or believe. And these bills require certain books <laughs> to be you know, subject to parental objection or certain topics to not be broached. This is 
uh, governmental overreach. And I think courts, whether state or federal, will find these problematic under the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment. I wonder, too, I mean, thinking about the way um, laws are being written and challenged in Florida and thinking about it from the constitutional law perspective, is it something you're seeing uh, across the country? Is is Florida pushing the envelope a little bit when it comes to some of these issues around freedom of speech and other constitutional issues? What are you seeing sort of nationally and how does Florida fit into that? So a lot of red states, uh, especially where you have a Republican governor and a Republican House and a, a Republican Senate, they are really pushing the envelope right now. And part of that could be the makeup of our current Supreme Court. So our current Supreme Court has three liberal justices and six conservative justices. Thus, laws that would have been deemed unconstitutional by previous Supreme Courts are likely to pass constitutional muster given the makeup of the court. So there are a lot of different bills moving around the country whether it's in the area of reproductive rights, voting rights, or free speech that uh, I think are completely constitutionally problematic if the Supreme Court respects its own precedent. But the one thing that a sitting Supreme Court can do is change the precedent. So I think we're, we're likely to see the Supreme Court get rid of Roe versus Wade in the next couple of weeks. And the court has been slowly but surely eroding voting rights. And we'll see what they do in the area of the First Amendment. Some of the First Amendment stuff gets tricky because when you start interfering with people's ability to get books or read or learn things, I think even this Supreme Court will find that constitutionally problematic. But even just just thinking back to what you said just a moment ago about in the next few weeks, Roe versus Wade could be done away with. Could you have imagined saying those words a few years ago? Like, how, how unusual is the situation we're in right now? Well, Roe v. Wade has been sort of on a constitutional chopping block for a very long time. Back in the 1990s, there was this case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey. It arose out of Pennsylvania. And back then, people were predicting Rose's demise. But Sandra Day O'Connor, who would have been the fifth vote to overturn Roe in Casey, refused to do so. I think, sadly, with the makeup of the current court, there isn't that person who can play that savior role. For a little while there, the Chief Justice, John Roberts, played that role in a case out of Louisiana. Uh, they got rid of a what's known as a trap law in Louisiana, and that was basically a year or two ago. But the difference between then and now is the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and her replacement with uh, Justice Barrett. I think that makes all the difference in the world. And Justice Barrett will not be like Sandra Day O'Connor, which is, um, I think, tragic for women's reproductive liberties. And of course, just to remind our listeners, uh, one of the bills that passed in Florida this year does revolve around restricting abortions 
past 15 weeks, and that's in line with what a lot of state legislatures have done around the country. Well, we've been speaking with Professor Chara Torres Spalacy from Stetson College of Law. Professor, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. And that's Florida Matters for this week. You can find us online at wusfnews.org or via Facebook or Twitter. Search for Florida Matters. Denora Prevost is our producer. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening.